Hello, Parkview. Good to see you. My name's Tim Sutherland. Uh, as you saw, Tim Harlow is, uh, is uh, still in Kenya. Can you believe it? <laughs> bad, bad joke. I apologize. But uh, he'll be back next week. So today, it's me and you. Glad you're here. We are in chapter 22 of the story. If you're here for the first time, if like this is your first time in Parkview, and you're like going, why are they doing like Christmas in February? There's the reason is because we've been going through the Bible through this particular kind of arrangement of the biblical texts called the story that helps us understand that the Bible is not just some, you know, amalgamation, some collection of sayings and wisdom and good stories with morals and things. No, 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 no. From beginning to end, the Bible is one continuous story of God putting everything back together again, of God bringing all things together again in Him. But I got to tell you, it, 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 it is a little weird though. We, we're in this, in this chapter called The Birth of the King, which is the Christmas story. And it is a little weird for me to be talking about the Christmas story in February. I mean, is that just me? You can say yes, no, or I don't know. Is that just me? No, okay, good. I was worried there for a second that there was just me. But, you know, so all week I've been thinking about this. Does this feel weird because it's two months after Christmas or ten months before Christmas? And then I get to thinking of how retailers, seems like every year the retailers are starting their advertisements and their sales and putting up their decorations earlier and earlier every year. And, and that kind of bugs me. Does that bug anybody else besides me? That kind of, right. And, and, uh, and it kind of bugs me. So I have decided that, that we're not talking about the Christmas story today. We're, we're not talking about it two months late. We're talking about it ten months early. I mean, because... Why should Target and Walmart have all the fun? <laughs> We're just kind of beating them to the punch, okay? So here we go, Christmas story. A little, little quick recap of where we've been in the story up till now. We've spent 21 chapters, a little over 20 weeks, uh, in, in the Old Testament part of the story. And in those 21 chapters, we followed the story of God's people. The ones through, through whom God intends to bring the world back to himself. God understand this about what it means to be God's people. Being God's people isn't like being selected for special blessing. That's not what it means. It means being specially blessed in order to bless the world. That's why Cannonball is in Kenya, for instance. And see, all along the way with the story, God's done just everything he could possibly do for his people. He, he, he's blessed his people and he's provided for them. When they've blown it, he's, he's cleaned up their mess. I mean, he sent leaders to, to, to rescue them and prophets to warn them and lead them back to them. But as we've talked about, they just keep the people of God. Just keep turning away from him. Turning away. Last weekend, we talked about how God kind of calls the people back to him in Nehemiah. And Nehemiah leads the people in the rebuilding of of the uh, of the walls around the city of Jerusalem everything are good for a while but then surprise surprise the people turn away from God again so God sends a prophet a prophet by the name of Malachi it's pronounced Malachi though some like to pronounce it Malachi <laughs> the Italian prophet you know so Malachi, I mean Malachi calls the people back to God. Malachi, if you notice, that's the last book of the Old Testament. All right? 
And there's a reason for that. Because when God calls people back to him, Malachi again, they eventually don't listen to him. So after the prophet Malachi, y'all, God does something different in the story. He does something in the story that he's never ever done before. He goes into this stretch of silence. Where there's no direct contact between him and his people. You have anybody in your life who forwards you a lot of emails? You know, like every day you know you're going to get two or three or 27 emails from this person. You know, or you get a lot of texts or a lot of calls. And maybe this person sends you so many contacts on a daily basis that you don't even open them all. You don't even, you don't even read them all. And, and uh, they're, they're probably sitting right next to you at this moment. <laughs> But, 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 but then maybe that person just stops emailing you or stops texting you and, and them not texting you, not forwarding you all those emails. It kind of gets your attention. See, that, that's what this stretch of silence is like with God. God God's not, not talking to him. It's not the divine silent treatment. It's not because he's ticked. It, he's trying to get their attention. It's very purposeful. He's trying to get their attention. He, 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 he's whetting he's their appetite. He's building anticipation for something that he's been talking about throughout the story. And this period of silence lasts for 400 years. And what he's trying to build a t- anticipation, as you, may, as you may know, woven throughout the fabric of the story is, is this prediction, this promise of a Messiah, of a Savior. And, and this Messiah, this Savior, wasn't just going to be a Messiah, a Savior. This Messiah was going to be a king. But not just a king, he's going to be the king. The king of God's people. The king of the world. Now I know when I say king of the world, I I know what some of you are thinking. I know, I know, but not like that. It's not like he just kind of feels like, whoa, I'm the king of the world. It's not not like a Leonardo DiCaprio kind of thing. It's actually king. He's, He's this king who's born in this chapter of the story. He's the promised one. He's, he's the one who's going to lead the people of God back to God and, 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 and lead them and bring in God's kingdom to the world and bring in all things back to Him. You know, at Christmas time we sing that song, a joy to the world, the Lord has come, let earth receive her, what? Right, King. But you know how it is. I, I, I don't think that's mo- what most people think about the baby in the manger as being the birth of the king. I mean, I think most people think of the baby in the manger as being, you know, about, you know, gentleness and kindness and, you know, niceness and goodwill. In my neighborhood, there's this one house that every year puts out those lawn ornaments, you know, nativity scene. But in theirs, instead of Joseph and Mary kneeling at the manger, it's Santa Claus and Frosty the Snowman. I don't even know why I shared that with you. You get that at no extra charge today. It just kind of cracks me up. But see, the Christmas story, it's it's not just about kindness and generosity. It's the birth of the king. The king that's been promised from the start. So, and, 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 and this isn't just like our take on this or how we've decided to theme this, this particular weekend in our, in our series. It is all throughout the biblical text. Let's start with Luke. If you start, if you start looking how, at how Luke tells the story. 
As Luke's telling the story of the birth of Jesus, look what he says. He says, in those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. Now, think with me. Who do you have to be? What kind of clout do you have to have that you can issue a decree that everybody has to go to their hometown to register for a census? You got to be something, right? You got to be somebody with some power. And, and, and Caesar Augustus is that guy. Here's who Caesar Augustus is historically. Caesar Augustus is the adopted son of Julius Caesar. But Caesar's not a family name. Caesar's a title. Caesar is, is the word from which we get the German word Kaiser. What's the German word Kaiser mean? Does anyone know this? Does anyone care or is listening at this point? The word, the word Kaiser means king. Can you, hear, can you hear the similarity between Caesar and Kaiser? Can you hear it? Good. You can say yes, no, or I don't know. Yeah, it, it, yeah it, 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 it's, it's, it's the same thing. Kaiser means king. Caesar is Latin for king. So, so the birth of, of Jesus, look what, look what the story's saying. The birth of Jesus takes place during the reign of the king. Augustus is King Augustus. He's king of the Roman world. But he's not just any old king. Augustus was somebody of whom it was said, and I quote, he was called the one who is to come. The divine king of salvation for whom mankind has waited. The son of God. That's who Caesar Augustus was said to be. So see what Luke is saying here, y'all? He's saying, during those days, there was a king who people claimed was the promised one. The hope of the world. The son of God. So the Christmas story, the setting is all about who really is the king. Are you with me? All right. All right. And Caesar Augustus, he's not the only king that's mentioned in the Christmas story. Uh, if you think about it, there's another king that's mentioned in the Christmas story. You know, there's this king who interacts with the wise men. And, and, and that king's name was, was King... Right, good. The people in the front row knew that one. The king, their, their name, his name was King Herod. And, and King Herod, um, well, how is both... Augustus king and Herod king. Well, the way it was is what Caesar Augustus would do. The, the Caesar was like over, over the whole empire. So he would appoint these lesser local kings to kind of rule by proxy on his behalf. He would appoint them and they would do their thing on his behalf. It was kind of like a way of delegating the whole king thing. And so King Herod was the local king over, over Jesus' people, over Mary and Joseph's people. And, and, and Herod was a bad man. And I don't mean bad like cool bad. I mean, I mean bad like bad. He, he had his wife and two of his sons and two of his brothers murdered for his own political and, and personal gain. He was such a tyrant. He was so hated by his people. He knew that when he died, no one would be sorry. So on his, bed, on his, de on his deathbed, check this out. He actually uh, gathered together. He, he rounded up. He had rounded, rounded up the leading citizens of the community. The ones who were respected and loved in an arena. And at the moment of his death, he had them put to death by, at, by the sword. Slaughtered. So that at least when he died, there was crying and mourning. 
even if it wasn't for him. He was a bad man. And on top of that, he, he lived in just incredible luxury. He built palaces all over the place, just opulent luxury. In fact, he, he, there was this one place where he wanted to have a mountaintop palace, but there wasn't a mountain there. So he had a mountain built and then put a palace on top of it. And he got all the money to do all that through taxes. Historians tell us that Mary and Joseph's people were, were taxed at a rate of 80 to 90% of their income. Think about that. I mean, I know it's that time of year and, and, and I don't know anybody that necessarily loves the tax bracket they're in, but it could be worse. Man, King Herod's a tyrant and God's people are suffering economically and they're being forced into debt and they're losing their land and their homes not because of any real estate bubble that's burst or because of any recession but just, but just to pay their taxes to King Herod who would then pass them on to Caesar Augustus. So you got to get it now. The, the setting of the story of the birth of Jesus, y'all, is, is this king named Augustus and this lesser king named Herod. They're on the throne. They're in charge and they're calling the shots. And, and, and if I'm one of God's people at the time, I'm thinking, God, God, if you're God and, and if you're good, why are we suffering under the rule of this king who's blaspheming you and, and claiming to be divine and claiming to be your son and, and this other king God who's just a tyrant and a despot and exploiting us. I mean, God, when are you going to show up and save us like you promised? When's the king you promise going to come, God? It's been centuries since you even spoke to us. God, where are you? And because these kings are in control, a man named Joseph and his fiance Mary, who's expecting, travel to their hometown for that census, Bethlehem. And as soon as the Bible says Bethlehem, once again, y'all, we've got that king thing. Because there was an ancient prophecy that the king that God would promise, who would be the real king of the world, he was going to be born in Bethlehem. So as soon as you say Bethlehem, there's that king thing again. And then on top of that, we're reminded in the text that Bethlehem was where David was from. And David is a king thing too. Even though he's not called King David, didn't in the Bible, don't have to say King David. I mean, if, 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 if I say Obama, you know it's implied president. If you, say, if you say David, it's implied king. But David wasn't just any king. David was the king through whom his lineage, his, his ancestry, the king of the world would come. See, are you picking up what the story's laying down? This baby's birth is the birth of the king. And what if that's true? What if this baby born in the manger isn't just a symbol of goodness and gentleness and niceness? What if he really is the king that God has promised for thousands of years who would come? Well, here's what 
one person who came to believe that this story was true that he that the baby in the manger really was the king here's what he said about it and, it, and, and he's really worth listening to because he was alive at the time these are the words of the apostle Paul this is from Romans chapter 1 which, which we will get to a little bit later in, 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 a, in a couple of weeks and, and here's what Paul says Paul says this he says Paul a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God, the gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Don't forget that part. Through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures regarding his son, who as to his earthly life was a descendant of David and who through the spirit of holiness was appointed son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, I know that's like a Bible passage and you can just kind of zone out and go, oh, Bible stuff, what's for lunch in a few minutes? But think, but work with me in this. Here's what Paul's saying here. Paul's identifying himself at the beginning of the book of Romans and, and Paul is saying, this story that I'm telling you is more than just a story. He says, this is the story that's changed me. This is the story that's transformed me. And if you know the story of the Apostle Paul, he, he, he wasn't like raised in a, in, a, in a Christian home so he would become a pastor someday. You know, he wasn't like Tim Harlow. He was, and which is a good thing, it's good that Tim's who Tim is, but he, he was raised exactly the opposite. He was raised a self-righteous, self-important, self-serving man. So much so that he would persecute to the point of imprisonment and even death at times anybody who was not going his way and the apostle Paul saying this is the story that's changed me from that kind of man to the kind of person who lives to be an apostle to be the one sent that my, my reason for living now is to help other folks come to this same conclusion that I've come to about who Jesus is but I, I mentioned this text from Romans because he's, he, he, he's not saying well this is my conclusion I mean you know how it is spiritually he, you know a lot of people say well you know this is, this is my spiritual reality and you have yours and I have mine. No, he's not just saying this is my conclusion. He is saying this is the conclusion that I have to make based on the prophecies that have been made down through the ages. Here's where we're going with this. He says that he's the, he's the king based on the, on the words of the prophets, the promise beforehand through his prophets. In the Old Testament, there are over 330 specific prophecies that are made over several thousand years about the Messiah King who would come. And I like, here's how I like to think of prophecy. I like to think of these prophecies as kind of like your name and address. If you think about your name and address, think about your full name and your, your, your house number and the name of your street and the city and the state. Those five things, those five things in combination, your, your full name and address are completely unique to you. No one else on the entire planet, nobody else among seven point, however many billion people there are now, has, has all five of those things. Those, those are unique to you. They identify you. Now see, I think biblical prophecy is like that. It's a way of identifying and giving the address of the birth of the king. And, and what I'd like to do now is I'd like to share with you all 300 prophecies. No, I'm just going to share with you eight. And I'll tell you eight. I'll tell you why I picked eight in just a minute. I'm going to share with you eight of these prophecies uh, that just have to do with the Christmas story. Okay, here we go. These will be on the screen. The story says the king will be a descendant of Abraham. 
That's prophesied in Genesis 22.18. It's fulfilled in Matthew 1.1. The story says the king will be a descendant of King David. That's prophesied in Jeremiah 23, 5 and 6. It's fulfilled in Luke 3.31. The story says the king will be born in Bethlehem. The Old Testament prophecy of that is in Micah 5.2. That prophecy is fulfilled in Luke 2, 4 through 7. The story says the king will be born of a virgin. The Old Testament prophecy of that is in Isaiah 7.14. The fulfillment of that prophecy is in Matthew 1.18. The story says the king will be honored with gifts from foreign kings. You know the whole wise men thing? That's a prophecy thing. That's from Psalm 72.10. And it's fulfilled in Matthew 2.11. The story says the king's going to be worshipped by shepherds. The whole shepherd thing on Charlie Brown. The, the whole shepherd thing. That was, that was, that, that's prophecy. That's prophecy in, from Psalm 72.9. And it's fulfilled in Luke 2.9. The story says the king will enter the temple in Jerusalem. That prophecy is in Malachi 3.1. That... And it's fulfilled in Luke 2, 25, 27. You know, when Mary and Joseph present Jesus at, in the temple not long after he's born. The story says the newborn king will flee to and return from Egypt. That's promised. That's prophesied in Hosea 11, 1. And then fulfilled in Matthew 2, 13, 14. Okay, those are eight prophecies that Jesus fulfilled about his birth. Now, the reason I gave you eight is because, see, there's over 300 prophecies that Jesus fulfilled in his life. Over 300 that showed that he is the king. But I gave you just eight from, his, from, from around his birth because of some calculations that, that were done by a mathematician by the name of Dr. Peter Stoner. He was a, he was a professor at uh, Pasadena City College and also a professor at Westmont College where, where my oldest son just happens to be graduating from here in, in May. And, and Dr. Stoner, he's an expert. He's an astronomer. He's a mathematician. He's a scientist. He's an expert in probability theory. And instead of trying to figure out the probability of one person just coincidentally fulfilling all 300 prophecies that Jesus fulfilled, 330 actually, that Jesus fulfilled, he decided to just do the math of somebody fulfilling eight of them. And he picked eight of them that someone could have no control over. Like, like, for instance, the prophecy that Jesus will be born in Bethlehem. Bethlehem is a town of about a thousand people at the time that Jesus was born. And, and uh, uh, Dr. Stoner came up with the probability, as a mathematician, that the likelihood of someone being born in Bethlehem was one in 300,000. But see, you can't control where you were born. That's why he picked that one. So it couldn't be like a self-fulfilled prophecy. And see, he did that with eight different prophecies. And he found that the odds of one person fulfilling just eight of the 300 plus prophecies in their lifetime, just as a matter of, of coincidence, he, he, he said he found and calculated that the odds of that are one in ten to the 17th power. Now, I'm horrible at math. Really horrible at math. So when he says 1 in 17, 1 in 10 to the 17th power, I just go, well, I'm sure that's a lot. <laughs> but I love this work that he did because he gave an analogy that somebody like me who's bad at math could wrap his brain around. He said it's to get how big a number, probability-wise, that 1 in 10 to the 17th power is, think of the entire state of Texas, not a map of Texas, the entire state of Texas covered in silver dollars two feet deep. Picture it in your mind now. 
entire state of Texas, covered in silver dollars, two feet deep. And then you take one of those silver dollars and paint a red X on it. And then you go up in the sky and you fly over the state of Texas and you drop that, that, uh, that, 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 that one silver dollar with a red X on it just at random somewhere in the state of Texas and then stir up the pot, the pile of, of Texas-sized uh, silver dollar pile two feet deep. Stir it up again. Then take somebody and put a blindfold on them and have them just wander around Texas for as long as they'd like to wander around the entire state. And at one point, just one time, reach down blindfolded and pick up one silver dollar out of the two feet deep pile of silver dollars that's the size of the state of Texas. And the odds that on the first try they would, that they would just coincidentally happen to pick up the one silver dollar in the entire state covered in silver dollars two feet deep, that's one in ten. To the 17th power. I told you it was a lot. <laughs> and I know. I know folks are skeptical. And say you know. It's just a coincidence. A coincidence that Jesus fulfilled 330 prophecies. I know other people say. Oh well you know it was a setup. It was like intentionally. Jesus intentionally lived his life. To look like the prophecy. Now, now think about that. That just doesn't make sense rationally. Because some of these prophecies. You can't, is there anybody here who picked where they were born? <laughs> anybody? Okay, I didn't think so. Is there anybody here who picked who their ancestors are? Did anybody pick their ancestors genetically? I, I didn't think so. You have no control over this kind of stuff. And see, the Apostle Paul goes, I didn't just come to the conclusion that Jesus happens to be, you know, king in my opinion. He says, I, I looked at the evidence of these prophecies. I'm going, ooh, he's the king. But you know what? The question today isn't whether you believe that the baby who was born in Bethlehem is the king. Truth is, it doesn't matter at all whether you believe he was the king. The question is, is he your king? As I was working on this message, this poem came back to me that I heard years ago. And, and, and it always kind of struck a chord with me. And it's just called Three Dollars Worth of God. I'd like three dollars worth of God, please. Not enough to explode my soul or disturb my sleep, but just enough to equal a cup of milk. A cup of warm milk or a snooze in the sunshine. I want the warmth of the womb, not a new birth. I want ecstasy, not transformation. I want a pound of the eternal in a paper sack. I would like $3 worth of God, please. Come on now. You can believe that when the baby was born in Bethlehem, you can believe he was the king. And that belief can end up being little more than $3 worth of God. But when he's your king, that changes things. When he's my king, that changes me as a husband. When he's my king, that changes me as a father. When, that, when he's my king, that changes me as a neighbor. When he's my king, that, that changes 
how I do business. When, when he's my king, that changes how I do my taxes. When he's my king, that changes how I, how I spend money. When he's my king, that changes how, how, I, how I get out of bed in the morning and how I spend my time. Because when he's my king, then what he's up to in the world is what I'm up to in this world. My king is out to feed the hungry. My king's out to console the brokenhearted. My king's out to befriend the lonely and bring comfort to the grieving. He's out to rescue the exploited and, and reconcile the estranged. And most of all, to redeem the lost. That's what my king's up to. And when, and when my king's up to that, that's what I'm to be up to. Listen now. Oh, oh, make no mistake about it this morning, friends. The question today is not do you believe that the baby born in the manger was the king. The question is today, are you willing to say, that's my king? The Bible says my king is the king of the Jews. He's the king of Israel. He's the king of righteousness. He's the king of the ages. He's the king of heaven. He's the king of glory. He's the king of kings. And he's the Lord of lords. That's my king. I wonder, do you know him? My king is a sovereign king. No means of measure can define his limitless love. He's enduringly strong. He's entirely sincere. He's eternally steadfast. He's immortally graceful. He's imperially powerful. He's impartially merciful. Do you know him? He's the greatest phenomenon that has ever crossed the horizon of this world. He's God's son. He's a sinner's savior. He's the centerpiece of civilization. He's unparalleled. He's unprecedented. He is the loftiest idea in literature. He's the highest personality in philosophy. He's the fundamental doctrine of true theology. He's the only one qualified to be an all-sufficient savior. I wonder if you know him today. He supplies strength for the weak. He's available for the tempted and the tried. He sympathizes and he saves. He strengthens and sustains. He guards and he guides. He heals the sick. He cleanses the lepers. He forgives sinners. He discharges debtors. He delivers the captive. He defends the feeble. He blesses the young. He serves the unfortunate. He regards the age. He rewards the diligent and he beautifies the meek. I wonder if you know him. He's the key to knowledge. He's the wellspring of wisdom. He's the doorway of deliverance. He's the pathway of peace. He's the roadway of righteousness. He's the highway of holiness. He's the gateway of glory. Do you know him? Well, his life is matchless. His goodness is limitless. His mercy is everlasting. His love never changes. His word is enough. His grace 
is sufficient, his reign is righteous, and his yoke is easy, and his burden is light. I wish I could describe him to you. Yes, he's indescribable. He's incomprehensible. He's invincible. He's irresistible. You can't get him out of your mind. You can't, you can't get him off of your hand. You can't outlive him, and you can't live without him. Well, the Pharisees couldn't stand him, but they found out they couldn't stop him. Pilate couldn't find any fault in him. Herod couldn't kill him. Death couldn't handle him, and the grave couldn't hold him. Yeah! That's my king. That's my king. Amen. Lord. Lord have mercy. Lord have mercy. Listen to me now. Don't you let anybody else be your king. Don't you let anything else be your king. Because nobody's king like he's king. And he's your, listen now. He's your king. Not because of what you do for him. He's your king because of what he done for you. There's a song and the lyric says, Amazing love, how could it be that you, my king, would die for me? You find you another king who died for you. There's not one. And his love for you is so strong. Death couldn't handle him. I don't know what you're going through. But death couldn't handle your king. And it's now in communion time that we celebrate that he's our king. Not because of what we do for him. Because of what he's done for us. Cups coming your way. It's really two cups in one. The top cup's got some juice in it. And underneath it is the cup. It's got a little piece of bread in it. Take one of those two-in-one cups and hold on to it. And pass the tray on. And hold it. And, 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 and let this be. be let, for somebody, maybe this is your moment right here. Right now. For some, you know, it, This isn't about what you believe to be true. This is about who's your king. Maybe this is the first time. This taking this communion isn't saying, oh, I believe in Jesus. I'm a Christian. No, 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 no. Taking communion is saying, that's my king. Let this be your time. Say a prayer with me. Lord Jesus, what can we say? What can we say of you? What can we say to you? So thank you. Thank you. Thank you.